Hi, and welcome back to another episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host, Patrick Polk, and today's guest is John Lockton, Head of Investment Strategy at Wilson's. John has been with Wilson's for nearly 12 years, having joined as a Senior Investment Strategist in 2010. He manages their Australian equity portfolios, and he's a member of the Asset Allocation Committee. Before joining Wilson's, he spent time with Citigroup, Credit Suisse, and Morgan Stanley. In this episode, he shares his view on the Australian market following the recent reporting season. He tells us about one important macro issue the market is overlooking. And we hear about several Aussie stocks with significant upside. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. John, welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you finally. <laughs> yeah, great to hear you, Patty. We've had a few a few struggles getting this all happening, but it's nice to be uh, sitting down and and being able to hear you clearly. And I'm really keen to get some of your views on uh, on the Australian equity market, economy, and what's going on in the world at the moment. But of course, the biggest issue in the world right now for for everybody, investor or not, is of course the the war in Ukraine. Looking at it from an, the perspective of you know a typical Australian investor, do you think that that's something that really should be informing their investment decisions at the moment? Yeah, obviously, what we're seeing on our screens and in the in the um, online is is pretty confronting and difficult. But I think, Patrick, the the ultimate answer to your question is that it's probably not going to make much difference in the long term. Um, and there's a couple of assumptions I'm, I'm making there is that, you know, I don't think, you know, wars typically don't go on forever. Even the Afghanistan conflict ended. Um, and from a market's perspective, um, I want to emphasize that from a market's perspective, this is going to end one of two ways. Either there'll be an outbreak of peace or it'll disappear onto the back page or buried in the middle of the paper somewhere, much like what we saw in Afghanistan, in Iraq and in Vietnam. Um, so from a medium to longer term perspective, um, the conflict here is is really a bit of noise, I think, in terms of um, in, in terms of how Australian investors should be thinking about their portfolio, thinking about what types of investments are appropriate or not. So do you think then that obviously there's been a bit of a, a sell-off in a lot of different sectors? Are you starting to put money to work in some of those sectors that have been sold off and that where there's some more attractive pricing now? The market hates uncertainty and war is one of the most uncertain things or conflict is one of the, one of the most uncertain things the market has to deal with and that's what's causing the market to to worry about the future um, and as I said I guess in the in the opening comments it's it's unlikely in our view that this goes on forever um, at some point um, there will be an end of sorts from a market's perspective as, as difficult as that 
can be when we've got such a human tragedy unfolding. Um, but quite simply, simplistically is that, yes, um, it's time to start, in our view, time to start looking at some of the sex sectors which have been knocked around, some of the companies which have been knocked around, perhaps too aggressively relative to the medium and longer-term outlook. Um, you know, on a five- to ten-year view, some of the the, uh, the mispricing we might see in markets today because of uh, conflict offshore will be, in the eyes of the market, forgotten about um, by the time we've rolled forward um, a few years. Well, there's, of course, been two major issues that have been dominating uh, markets this year. We just spoke about one of them. The other one has been rising interest rates. I think both of those topics have been discussed at length. What I'd be interested to hear is the macro issues that are not currently being discussed. What are you seeing when you look past the rates issue and and what's happening overseas? What are the, the macro issues that are on your radar that you think maybe aren't getting the attention they deserve at the moment? Uh, this one's, I guess, one of my pet favourites here with uh, very much a local a local lens um, on Australia and, and the Australian equity market is we just as a nation uh, we've just seemed to have lost our ability to think about structural reform and productivity enhancing um, changes to legislation and changes to processes uh, we saw a raft of that through the 80s through the 90s and through the noughties but certainly or early noughties but certainly for the last 10 to 15 years it's it's just very hard to get productivity enhancing um, initiatives underway and I think that comes back to you know that directly impacts the level of earnings growth which companies can have here it directly um, impacts the level of consumption growth because consumers will just not have the same level of income growth and the same level of, of money in their pockets than the, that what we would have if if more aggressive and and ambitious structural reforms to the economy were, were undertaken so that's one of my pet pet um, pet uh, snipes of, uh, of I guess where where the Australian political landscape and our inability to uh, get through structural reform is at the moment. But it does have a real cost um, on, as I said, on, on consumers and on the, the level of profitability from some of our biggest companies. Let's say that you're uh, the Prime Minister and that you, you've you got a, a majority in both houses so you can pass the legislation that you think needs to be passed to fix these problems. What are what are the first things that you change to try and address those issues? I think tax would be would be one area. Um, it would be high up in your kind of top three buckets, but um, getting more incentive for people to take on risk. Um, uh, you know, it, it's very very difficult to do, but you know, broadening the consumption based tax and lowering income taxes and with the provided offset. In terms of social social security and, and, and welfare, um, you know that's a massive productivity enhancing um, reform, which you know done right um, creates greater incentive and um, doesn't become a drag on the economy at all. It, it, it's actually enhancing. We've just gotten through February reporting season. Um, it's a couple of days ago now, but it's still pretty fresh in most investors' minds. Um, what were the most important kind of big trends that you saw coming out of company reports this February? 
Yeah, so I guess the single most significant takeaway we took um, at Wilson's around the results season was that the Aussie equity market in February um, outperformed global markets and we had our second month of earnings upgrades for the market as a whole. Um, so on that basis, it's at least reasonable for the reporting season. Um, when we dig beneath the surface a little more, where did those earnings upgrades come from? Look, to be honest, most of those earnings upgrades came from global cyclicals, um, so commodities, um, energy, um, even some of the utilities had, had sector-based earnings upgrades. Um, so perhaps that wasn't directly related to Team Australia and the, and the Aussie results season. That's more related to what's going on globally. But needless to say, our market, 50% of our market is cyclical-related companies. Um, so it, it, it does matter. Um, so that was a really big trend th- which we saw through results season. And then from a you know, what was bubbling beneath the surface there through results season, particularly on the more industrial companies, a, a better measure of the here and now in, in the Aussie market, was I guess the I guess combined optimism around the recovery in the current half and into fiscal 23. Um, now, most companies are still quite cautious around giving guidance and being too prescriptive on that, even though there's only, you know, four to five months left of this fiscal period. Um, but most companies uh, were, were quite optimistic that the, the, the consumer outlook looks looks pretty strong. And, you know, once um, people have a little bit more confidence around um, the the Omicron situation, um, some of the borders start opening up and there's just, you know, greater um, greater comfort of, of people mixing and travelling um, that, um, you know, the, the path to this, I guess, new normal um, will see increased activity and that will benefit, you know, sectors and um, a wide range of sectors. Do you think the recent, you know, we were just discussing them before, uh, the, the, the situation in the Ukraine, do you think that has an effect on consumer confidence as much? I, I'm, I'm, I've never been through an experience like this before, so um, I don't know how these situations normally impact, you know, your typical consumer. So we, we've spoken about the investor angle, but what about consumers? Yeah, typically what we see in, in global conflicts of, of scale, um, and I think that's probably where we'd put the the current Ukrainian and, and Russia conflict is that it does have a negative um, relatively short-term impact on consumer confidence it's it's on the front page of the of the newspapers it's on TV it's on your on your social feeds and it's you know it's, it's disturbing headlines mm. um, and that does uh, subdue official measures of consumer confidence the, the key question is is just how long um, does uh, th- how long is that impact prevalent for Mining and banking obviously are the the two big sectors that we see on the ASX. Uh, you can probably give me some numbers, I'm sure, but I think they make up uh, something like forty percent of the of the ASX. What did you see in those sectors? I know you spoke a little bit before about mining, so maybe we'll just focus on banking instead. What what's coming through for for the banks for the insurance companies? You know, how are those businesses performing at the moment? Yeah, so let's um, have a quick chat around the the banks, and I guess my comments here are mostly related to the big four banks, which you know is about twenty percent of the market. Um, so your your forty percent when we add resources isn't too far from the truth. Um, 
But uh, yeah, the big four banks. So we had CBA report formal results, and we had updates um, from the other from the other three. Um, the bottom line is is that credit conditions, credit growth, which is you know what drives revenue growth, one of the key inputs into revenue growth for the banks, is actually going really well at the moment. Housing growth is still strong. We've seen a, a nice pickup in in um, in business lending um, post um, post the the Omicron and and Delta situations through through last year. So. The, the, the top of the funnel, if you like, is, is going quite well. And with the prospect of higher interest rates, um, that is keeping, you know, that's exciting some of the bankers because generally speaking, the, the higher the rate, the easier it is to have higher margins uh, for, for the banks. So um, that's, the, that's the really good, good news story around, around the banks. Then it becomes a little bit more tricky when we unpack the results of the big four in, you know, individually. Um, you know, CBA continues to to have very clean and strong execution, um, and then it becomes more mixed. NAB is having a great time of things at the moment, executing well, um, lifting market share, looking after earnings, um, and then Westpac and ANZ. It's a little bit more tricky as as they deal with largely internal issues. Um, some of them legacy issues, um, some of them um, short term strategic. Um, directions which have gone the wrong way in the short term, which need to be rectified. Um, so it's quite—it's a little bit more nuanced at a company-specific level in terms of how they're on, on, in terms of how they're executing. But uh, the bulls on the banks will, will will always say, "Well, John, we've got great credit growth. We don't seem to have any near-term threat on on, on bad debts, um, and the banks." Can finally um, start to focus more cleanly on execution rather than worrying about COVID over the last two years, and that should help on the cost front. That's what the bulls are quite excited about in terms of the, I guess, the narrative around the banks at the moment. Um, assuming rates do go up, as has been widely speculated, would you expect that to have a bit of a dampener effect on credit growth, um, or do you think that 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 that'll still power on ahead? With you know. Uh, Assuming, let's say, rates go up by, I don't know, say 100 basis points from here, somewhere in that kind of range. Yeah, well, 100 basis points, that's probably four four rate rises thereabouts. I think through the course of this calendar year 22, you know, we might see one or two rate rises from the from the RBA. And I don't think that's going to have too much of an impact um, on, on credit growth. But you, you're right, as we change... As the RBA changes the price of money, um, it will have a dampening effect. So, we've had, I guess, um, very low rates driving um, driving credit growth, and that will, you know, in my view, subdue into into twenty three. But, um, you know, rates in an absolute sense and relative to other particular measures, even at one percent on the cash rate, um, isn't going to be what I would phrase it a really aggressive application of the brakes on the domestic economy it's yeah we're off the accelerator and we're trying to you know get things back to normal but it's not a an aggressive application on the on the brakes to slow down the economy so I, I still remain reasonably optimistic that we're going to see um, you know low to mid single digit credit growth um, through the course of calendar uh, 20 uh, th- yeah through the course of calendar 2022. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago that CBA had a very, you know, typically high quality kind of result. Of course, CBA is always traded at a premium because they keep putting in those high quality results. Uh, when you take valuation into account, 
Um, do you think that they're justifying that premium at the moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a correct observation. Um, and the market gets itself in all kinds of knots, understanding is it is it justified, is it is it not? Um, our view at the moment is that it's probably not quite justified um, in the sense that we're still reasonably optimistic about the the recovery here in Australia. We a little bit lagged from the rest of the world given the difficulties we had last year. Um, and, and that should help lift those banks which aren't performing as cleanly as what CBA has done through the last two or three years. So, yeah, we actually think NAB, um, Westpac, and to a lesser extent, but still relevant, ANZ, um, you know, really have a good opportunity because the cycle um, should help give them a, a arguably a, a bigger kick than what CBA will get over the next 12 to 18 months. Let's dive into some other sectors. Obviously, the the sensitivity to rates is a very big issue for investors at the moment. The direction of those rates, perhaps uh, expectations have changed a little bit over the last couple of weeks. But I think regardless of whether they're moving up or down, it's a big question for investors as to where the sensitivities lie. From your perspective, which are the sectors that you see as being most sensitive to interest rates? But could you give me the view both on, you know, the rising interest rate story, but also the, you know, the falling interest rate expectation story? I'm not suggesting that rates are actually going to get cut from here. But if all of a sudden the market decides that we're not going to get four to six hikes, obviously that's going to create a very different dynamic. So in each one of those kind of hypotheticals, which are the sectors that you're looking at? Yeah, so it can be quite a complex topic on interest rates and and, and market rates or, or market yields. But in in summary, globally, we're we're about to embark, if not already have started, um, the the upward lift in in cash rates from you know what essentially was emergency levels driven by COVID and essentially record lows. So, yeah, very hard to cut from here. Um, more likely we're going to see rate rises over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And spot on, Patrick, in terms of where that uncertainty is in markets, it's around not only the pace, i.e. the the, the speed at which those rate um, potential rate rises come, but, but also how far do they need to go. Um, so they're two really big issues which the market is debating and will swing from left to right um, at various points over the, I would imagine, over the course of this year is, um, you know, the, the case for going faster or going slower gains gains or loses credence. In terms of locally, which sectors will be impacted? And these sectors can be impacted even if the RBA does nothing because of the global expectations around the lift in, in rates, and that can be fed through into our market rates, you know, our five-year bond and our 10-year bond which ironically are quite important for how we price um, for how we price equities. So those sectors most exposed are those sectors which have, I guess, the highest growth potential or the, the longest, you know, in the jargon, the longest duration in, in earnings. Those, those companies where we can see 5, 10, 15, 20-year pathways of above GDP growth. Um, healthcare would be a really good example in the sense that particularly the Australian healthcare companies, which are more growthy and I guess more innovative 
than your average global healthcare company, you know, a CSL or a Cochlear or a ResMed has, you know, you can see quite long pathways for their goods and services that they produce. Um, you know, that's when rates go up, when market rates go up, the, the valuation, the discounted cash flows, if you like, of those companies needs to be reduced and that impacts um, ultimately on the, on the share price. And we've seen, you know, even in the course of this year, we've seen the Aussie healthcare stocks underperform global healthcare stocks. Um, and that's predominantly because of the change in the discount rate. I'm just going to rewind back to go all the way back to the start of the interview for a second there. You mentioned that our Aussie healthcare stocks are quite innovative. I'm curious, do you have a view on why our healthcare industry is able to maintain that innovation when other areas of the economy aren't being able to do that? Healthcare in Australia, I, I would put down as a sector an area, an industry where we have comparative advantage. Um, yeah, we've had that for many a decade here in, in Australia and we've been able to export um, export our healthcare um, goods and services offshore in a, in a pretty reasonable way. We're certainly bad above our weight in terms of um, in terms of our relevance to global GDP on a healthcare basis. Um, exactly why we have been so great at doing that, um, couple of reasons I'd suggest. We have a great educational backdrop, so our human talent pool is very good. But you look at the companies, our healthcare companies, which have managed to go offshore. I've mentioned three of them, but also, you know, Sonic has gone offshore. Um, Ansel has gone offshore. We've, we've typically gone into areas which have lower levels of competition and where we've had a strongly differentiated product or been the first to market. Um, in that product and, and you know in the case of CSL you know uh, in terms of plasma is it really that differentiated no not really but you know their their speed to market their ability to grab market share and hold market share has 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 enabled the cash flows to continue to come into the business and allow them to pursue um, new growth opportunities so as distinct from a you know some of the global healthcare companies pharma companies you know pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies um, it can be difficult to sustain sustainably um, hold a competitive advantage when you know the rate of innovation um, and patent roll-off etc cetera, etc cetera, with key products is is pretty rapid it's it can be quite hard to you know maintain that competitive advantage well, among the sectors we've just been discussing, let's get into some stocks. Could you tell us about a company that you think is uh, particularly well positioned in the current environment? Yeah, I'm going to nominate Macquarie Group, uh, Patrick, um, in the financials um, in the financials sector. Um, the stock has underperformed the market this year, only by a fraction. Um, that doesn't happen very often, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it has underperformed, and it's basically underperformed on a risk-off risk-off environment. And Macquarie, you know, is typically a little bit more risky than the market, um, and hence why it's it's underperformed. But in, in, in having said that, it's put through an earnings upgrade um, through the course of this year. Um, I just see that business in, I guess, what I'd call a sweet spot in terms of what the overall macro backdrop is to Macquarie's core competencies. Um, in terms of finding um, inefficiencies in the market um, and offering services um, to, to that uh, to those areas of the market, so whether that's in infrastructure, whether that's in energy, whether that's in clean energy, 
in technology, um, in urbanisation, um, helping bring development and change to those areas and bringing the financial and capital to, to assist in those areas has proved to be a very profitable and lucrative um, business plan, I guess, for, for this business for, for, for many years. So I think one aspect where I think the market may have uh, maybe too conservative through the medium term is that Many have said, well, Macquarie just can't get back to the good old days where it earned, you know, close to 20% return on capital. Um, when we looked through the results last year, it got pretty close to that. Um, you know, it got to about 17, 18%. And I think, you know, there's a real potential that we actually go back to a 20% return on capital on Macquarie Group um, over the course of the next couple of years, um, given, you know, some of the structural drivers which, uh, which they're playing to. Just for a bit of context, uh, you mentioned 20% return on capital there. Amongst other banks and financial institutions, what's a typical level of, uh, of return on capital? It's not quite the fairest comparison, but if we just pick on the big four, um, because they're well recognised, then your average big four is around about 11 to 12% with CBA two percentage points better. So it's, it's a materially higher um, return on, return on uh, shareholder funds. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure most people will be pretty happy if they could earn a 20% return consistently. Let's get into some small caps. Always a popular a popular topic. Looking amongst the coverage that that you guys provide at Wilson's, could you identify a couple of standouts looking out say over the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick firstly um, Ridley in the agricultural space. Um, you know, company's been around for for ages. Um, you know, circa five hundred million dollar market cap. We think it's mispriced at the moment. You know, we can see from here around about 30 percent upside um, on a twelve month basis. And what we like about the Ridley story, which you know supplies um, inputs. Um, into the you know into the food and into the the animal supply chain, um, it's really an agency business. Um, what we like here is that this is a management led initiative to go back to the Macquarie story to lift the return on capital in a business which has had subpar returns on capital. Um, so if we go from a six to seven percent return on capital to a twelve, thirteen, or fourteen percent return on capital, that should lift the the share price materially. That journey is partway is partway accomplished, but not fully accomplished. And that's why Patrick, we think you know the Ridley um, the Ridley share price can can appreciate by about another thirty percent from here over the next twelve months or so. Well, let's hear about another another small cap then. Could you give us a pitch on your on your second one that you've got lined up there then? Yeah. So. You know, we cover we cover just under a hundred small caps at, at Wilson's. The the other stock I will, would nominate Patrick would be Silk Laser, um, which is a laser clinic business. Um, it's much smaller; it's about half, just under half the size of, of Ridley, so about two hundred million dollar market cap. We we as a firm brought this to the market last year, um, and this is really a story around the consolidation of a quite fragmented industry in terms of um, laser treatments for, for hair removal, um, but also and more importantly is around some of the, the, the newer treatments. Um, you know, this is predominantly a business which, which women participate 
in. I think it's only about five percent of us guys um, go to a, a laser clinic. And Patty, I'm not sure if you're one of them. It's it's not me, but um, um, but a couple of aspects to this business which which are new and and you know are seeing quite strong levels of growth um, are around um, body sculpting. So ability to change the shape of your body, you know, lose weight easily. Um, and I guess um, around um, other cosmetic, um, non-invasive cosmetic procedures. Um, and, and those three aspects, so um, from sculpting to, to laser to um, body image, um, present quite a strong growth outlook for this business. Um, there's only one other major um, supplier or competitor, um, which is a private equity-backed uh, firm in the country. The rest of the the rest of the country is largely, um, you know, pretty basically full of small operators. So there's quite a strong consolidation story here, um, and we think as the market gets more comfortable um, around this asset, and and the asset can show some growth um, here in Australia and um, and in New Zealand that uh, the the multiple or the, the price paid for, um, for for this stock will, will rise significantly. So. Yeah, we we think there's thirty to forty percent upside um, on Silk Laser on a on a twelve month view. Is that more of a roll up story or more of a roll out? Like, are they buying existing businesses and and bringing them into the fold, or are they creating new new shop fronts, more of a greenfield kind of thing? Yeah, it, it's both. They've just come off a, a reasonably large acquisition in New Zealand, um, where they, you know, they, 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 I guess they're beachhead in, in New Zealand. But um, their strategy um, over the next few years is is going to be a combination of both acquisition um, and also roll, uh, you know, greenfields rollout. Mm, great, couple of new stocks there, not ones that I'm familiar with. Have to go have a bit of a look later. Well, that brings us to the end of the main part of the interview, but uh, as regular listeners will no doubt be aware, I have three favourite questions that I like to ask each one of my guests. So if you're happy to hang around for another five or ten minutes, we can run through those now. First of all, could you tell me about a book that has been particularly influential on your investment philosophy? I'm actually not going to nominate a single book, but I am going to share with listeners you know, a habit I developed quite early um, in my investing career um, when I was back at school and even at, at, at university, and that is just the 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 significant consumption of of qualified and um, authoritative news sources. So, you know, digging your head into the week over a weekend into the Wall Street Journal or the FT or, or the Financial Review or Livewire Markets. <laughs> live wire markets these days as well. Um, I, I think quality um, quality journalism, quality uh, news reporting is just so informative. Um, the range of opinions you get there from both uh, corporates, um, p- political leaders, um, and investors is 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 just powerful. So um, yeah, I really enjoy doing that on a weekend. Um, is is going into some of those long form articles, and I think you can get a really good sense as to what makes um, different aspects of the market tick, and um, and the the the, um, the insights you get are, are very very powerful. Could you tell us about your biggest gain or loss as an investor? What were the most valuable lessons that you took from the experience? I'm going to go on the more positive side rather than the negative side, um, partly because gains can be 
uncapped where losses typically you can only ever lose 100% and I think most of us would have a couple of those. Um, Unless you're a short seller, I guess. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Then the, then the opposite prevails. But yeah, what, one which comes to mind um, personally was, was around um, Afterpay um, here in Australia. Um, I was in a fortunate position. Um, you know, we were, you know, our firm was, in, well, my firm was involved in, in, in bringing that company to market. So we got to have a, a really good look at that early on. And if I was to, if I was to say to listeners, uh, when we're looking to, to float that business, it almost didn't pass the, the IPO process. We, we actually struggled to, to get that business across the line. That's how tight it was. Eventually, was it just we, a lack of investor interest or was there regulatory correct. hurdles? No, just, just a lack of too many questions around exactly what it was done. And at yeah. the time, the afterpay component of the business, which was being floated, was you know, really just a footnote in the prospectus. Um, and you know, afterpay itself wasn't part of the, the conversation at the time. But you know, as, um, as we got to learn about the business, as the market got to learn about business, um, you know, and the growth and the angle which Buy Now Pay Later had for the Aussie market and now the global market um, just created significant amounts of, of, of shareholder wealth for, you know, for, uh, for, for investors. It's always fascinating to me the amount of institutional scepticism around that stock. And it seems to have been, you know, right from, well, I would have said from the IPO, but it seems like it even predates the IPO all the way up until the, the recent merger Whereas it seems as though retail investors really caught on quite quick. I think it was much easier for the for average retail investors to to understand the value proposition. It, it always makes me think of you know the the Peter Lynch approach with scuttlebutt and getting out there and and actually you know speaking to people who use the product and using the product yourself and that kind of advantage you can get that way. Yeah, it's certainly when you speak to the retailers who. Uh, who who got on board early and you spoke about uh, and you and you asked them what it did to their sales, which was really important, really important because ultimately they were paying for the service um, and the sales uplift they had, and it just you know every time you you spoke to retailers, it seemed to be that it just kept going and going, and you know the the rest is history, I guess, in terms of where that business has gone. Well, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually su- suggesting that anybody goes out there, puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? I'd have a look at an offshore cybersecurity play called CrowdStrike. Um, which are you know, at the forefront of this significant um, industry change in terms of lifting um, the the requirements for information security, IT security globally. And they're one of the leaders in the field, um, compounding revenue growth of north of 50% at the moment. Um, and you know, what to me looks like a an emerging car- comparative advantage versus versus other players, and we all know that the, the move to cloud and online um, a good part of that has already happened. But the the whole security apparatus around moving your business from on premise to off premise has lagged. So really, it's a derived play on that whole cloud consumption 
Um, and this is, you know, CrowdStrike looks after the security of many of the world's largest firms as they take their business increasingly onto the cloud. So that would be one which I would have thought should do quite well on a five-year view. Sounds good. Well, John, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a slightly shorter interview than we normally do. That was very much a deliberate choice. Hope it's worked well for you. I hope the audience has enjoyed it too. To those listening, I'd love to hear your feedback if you enjoyed this shorter format. My followers on Twitter requested it, so we're giving it a bit of a go here. Let us know if you love it or you hate it. John, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks, Patrick. It's been great fun.